Good morning, and uh, again, strange times, and doing this online virtually this morning is not ideal, but it's where we are, and uh, we're trusting that God is going to work powerfully through His Word by the power of His Spirit that resides within us, believers in Jesus Christ this morning. So wherever you are, whether you're watching this on a television or on some kind of a device or a computer, I just invite you to grab your Bible. We want to make sure that wherever we are, our face is in the Word of God, that that is where our attention is, and we're trusting again that God is going to do a great work through His Word in our hearts this morning, specifically as we look at gospel history. It's been said that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Knowing history is incredibly important, especially gospel history. But what we learn from history is that we do not often learn from history. There are countless examples of this throughout history textbooks, but we don't actually have to look very far. We know this is true in the events of our own lives. But a good history lesson actually serves to reinforce timeless truths. And that's exactly what Paul gives us this morning in Romans chapter 4. So I'd invite you, if you haven't turned there already, to turn to Romans chapter 4. And in effect, Paul is giving us a gospel history this morning. He's giving us a history lesson to actually reinforce the gospel truths that he has been preaching to us from chapters 1 through 3. He's carrying forward the theological truths that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that our salvation is a result of faith, not a result of works. And now to illustrate that point, he brings us back into history, and he wants to give us a model of this in the life of Abraham. He shows us that Abraham himself was justified by faith and not works. From Abraham's example, we can learn much, but I, I want us to see this morning that we can learn that through faith alone, God actually credits all righteousness. God credits all righteousness. Let's read verses 1 through 5 together and look at this theme. Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here, Paul is making abundantly clear through the life of Abraham that God is the one who credits or counts all righteousness. Now, in verses 1 through 3, it's notable That as Paul writes, remember, primarily to Gentile churches, he mentions numerous Old Testament figures. He's going to do this throughout the book of Romans, and he does this in a lot of his letters. And this simply confirms for us the importance that Paul attaches to the salvation history stretching all the way back through the Scriptures. You see, he wants to draw our attention to the history of the gospel throughout the pages of Scripture, and he wants to stretch us all the way back, and he's going to do this even in chapter 5, to the Garden of Eden with Adam himself. 
But to understand why Paul chooses Abraham, we have to understand some important contexts. First, I want to just show you, broadly speaking, the biblical context for the life of Abraham. I want you to understand in the horizon of Scripture where Abraham falls and why he's so critical. You see, Abraham really comes into focus in Genesis chapter 12. So all the way at the beginning of the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, what we have after the fall in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, what we see is that the world begins to unravel because of the presence and pervasiveness of sin. You don't have to go very far in the book of Genesis to see how devastating the effects of sin are. We see that the entire world is corrupt and everybody is essentially doing what's right in their own eyes, so much so that God has to purge wickedness from the earth and He judges the earth with a flood. Following that in Genesis chapter 6 and following, we see that humanity doesn't get any better, even through the line of Noah, and we get to Genesis 10 and 11, and what we see is that all humanity is back to their old ways, rebelling against God, building the Tower of Babel in their united effort to rebel against God and unseat Him, so to speak, from His throne of authority and power. It's here, at this point in the story, when God disperses the nations and He hands them over to the lowercase g, gods of this world, He gives them over to their sin that God calls one man. And in Genesis chapter 12, what we see is that He comes alongside this man, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, listen to what it says. Now, consider this. One, essentially, from Genesis 3 through 11, we have this concept in our minds, the curse of sin, the curse of sin, the curse of sin. And all of a sudden, here comes Genesis 12, and it says this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." We have the reminder that God is going to bless humanity. And he makes this covenant with Abram. And he tells him that through, through you, Abram, I am going to reverse the curse of sin. Through you, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to see, receive blessing, not the curse. You will have an heir, Abram, who will be a blessing to the entire world. Here is the broader biblical context, but we need to actually understand the historical context in which Paul himself is writing. You see, the time that Paul was writing the book of Romans, the Jews revered Abraham. They had always revered Abraham. They had seen Abraham as essentially the Jew of Jews. He was the father Abraham. He was an example to them of piety, of faith, and of obedience. They looked at him as a model they, they thought they should just try to live like him, and maybe they would receive the blessings that God gave to him. In fact, in the intertestamental period, the period between the Old and the New Testaments, there are some writings that are not Scripture, but they're incredibly fascinating and give us some historical insight. In a book entitled The Book of Jubilees, listen to what is written about Abraham, and this really captures what the Jews thought of Abraham. 
It says this, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Well, it's uh, not really accurate. If you know the story of Abraham, you know it's fraught with sin. He's not this man who is completely righteous in all of his deeds and well-pleasing to the Lord. And Paul does something so scandalous here at the beginning of Romans chapter 4. Look at what he says in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't as a result of his works. It wasn't anything he had done. And here, what Paul is doing is quoting directly from Genesis 15, verse 6, that has, contains those exact words that he believed God, and it was credited or counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Don't you see, Paul says? Abraham was justified by faith before he did any of these great works for which he is so famous, for which you so value him and respect him and revere him. And what's so incredible about Abraham is his faith, not his works. That's the historical context in which Paul is writing, but we actually need to understand the immediate context of Genesis 15 itself. In order to catch the full impact of Abraham's amazing faith, we actually need to to see it framed by Genesis 15. Abraham had just come off, you see, this great uh, military victory in which he had led 318 of his own men to go and rescue his nephew Lot. He had defeated four kings in battle in Genesis 14, and Abraham was in this really low place. After this victory, he was suffering this kind of a post-victory letdown. Having been in the land for 10 years, remember, God had promised him a child, He promised him an heir, but having been in the land for 10 years, he still has no child. The Scriptures say in Genesis 15, verse 1, that Abraham, again in his sorrow, he hears these words, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. Abraham is still really discouraged at this point, and so he recites his plight to the Lord. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus, his servant? He says to God, you have given me no children. It was at this point that the promise of the Lord came to him. God says these specific words, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then he takes him outside, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, look up into the sky. See if you can count the stars. He says, so shall your offspring And the very next verse tells us, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, there are three things to note about God's credited righteousness. First, um, God's righteousness, um, it, it isn't faith in faith. It isn't faith in faith. 
You see, Abraham did not just have faith as a kind of abstract quality. So many in the world today are obsessed about having faith. Every time I talk about my faith with somebody else who's not a believer, they say something oftentimes to the effect of like, well, it's so good you have faith. I have faith too, and we all need to have faith. But the reality is, is that some kind of abstract or ethereal faith has no value. The value of your faith is determined by the value of the object you have placed that faith in. And Abraham knew this. He believed the covenant promise of God. That's where his faith was in. His faith was in God and the promise that God had made. What's so fascinating if we think about this in terms of gospel history is that Galatians 3 verse 6 through 9 tells us something, something so incredibly powerful. Listen to what it says. It says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, listen to this, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see what the Scriptures teach? Do you see what God is saying here in His Word? Abraham believed the gospel. He didn't have the fullness of the gospel like we do now, but he had the seed of the gospel. And he put his faith there. He believed God would do what he said he would do. Secondly, notice this, it isn't earned by works. It isn't earned by works. That's Paul's whole point in this section. Abraham's faith was counted to him, credited. This word appears 11 times in chapter 4. And again, it has this idea of simply crediting to somebody's account, imputing it to their account without it being deserved or earned. It speaks of a legal decision of God to count righteousness to Him. It's like having a sum of money that's simply been deposited into your bank account. We all know what it's like to get a credit in our bank account, but imagine you got a credit. It wasn't a paycheck. It wasn't something somebody owed you. Imagine you walked to your bank account today, and you looked in your account, and somebody had deposited an insane amount of money into your account. Every once in a while, this happens by accident. People go out and spend it, and then they go to jail. But this is no accident in the gospel. God credits an incredible amount of righteousness, an eternal amount of righteousness into our accounts. And you see, this is a change in status, not a change in character, at least initially. You see, when God credits righteousness to Abraham, He did so in an instant, in a moment. Any change in Abraham's character came gradually and subsequently. Here's why this is so important, because so many people believe they can only come to God if they clean themselves up first. So many people believe that they can only come back to church if they clean themselves up first. You don't fix yourself and then come to faith. You have faith, and then God fixes you. You don't change your behavior in order to believe. You believe, and then God begins to transform your behavior. Third, notice this. It isn't swapped with faith. That this isn't this kind of trade that is being made where Abraham says, okay, God, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my faith if you give me your righteousness, as if they're kind of just swapping 
them. You see, when God credits righteousness to our account, it's, it's not a swap. We, we don't generously offer God our faith, and then He offers us His righteousness as if it's some kind of a deal He simply can't refuse. You see, that, in effect, would make faith a work, and it gives us grounds to boast the very thing Paul is denying. Faith, instead, is the channel, it is the conduit by which the unearned righteousness of God is credited to the sinner, which is good because, in reality, we don't want what we deserve. Look at verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if you could earn it and work for it, it would be something that you were owed. It wouldn't then be a, a, a gift of God's grace. So many of us believe that our faith or the blessings of God are something that we can somehow earn as if it's a paycheck that we, we're getting from God, that we deserve. We, we look at God and say, okay, God, look at all the good things I've done. Now, give me my paycheck. You really want your paycheck? We say, yes, give me my paycheck. I want what I deserve. I want what I've earned. Unfortunately, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The only thing we've earned when it comes to God is hell. Hell is God's righteous anger and indignation, His justice in perfection poured out for all eternity. That is what we have earned, and that is what we deserve. But look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. But I wonder if you caught the scandal in verse 5. Did you catch the word that Paul used there? Paul just said that Abraham was ungodly. The ungodly are only justified through faith in Jesus. That's the only way we can be made right with God. Only through Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, who is our propitiation and our redemption, only by His life and His death and His resurrection can we be made right with God. Only by placing our faith at the cross. Through faith alone, God credits all righteousness. We don't add anything to it. We don't earn it in any way, shape, or form. God must give it all to us, and He does in the gospel. Secondly, notice this, that God covers all debt. God covers all debt. Again, Paul is just reinforcing truths that he has been proclaiming, and he's giving us Old Testament history lessons, in effect, as illustrations. And just to add a little weight to Abraham, he throws King David in to prove his point. And again, we get more of this gospel history. Notice what he says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Abraham lived about a thousand years before David. And between those two, Moses wrote down the law. But despite living under the law and loving the law and striving to obey the law, King David did not believe that keeping the law perfectly was possible, nor did he believe that it would justify him with God. 
We know this from Scripture that David was both a man after God's own heart and a man who was skilled in sin. By the Bible's own account, David was a man of war. He was a scheming adulterer, and he was a murderer. His sin brought great tragedy into his own life and would follow him all the days of his life. It's a good reminder for us this morning that sin is never trivial. David knew what he needed. He needed his debt cleared, canceled, paid in full. He needed all of his debts covered completely, and he knew that he couldn't do that himself. And Paul quotes the words of David from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Just two verses, but you need to understand this. Whenever a New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament, most often, maybe even all the time, they're expecting you to have a broader understanding of the context of those verses. Sometimes they're actually alluding to the whole chapter, even the whole book. Here, David is certainly alluding to the entire chapter. You see, the entire psalm is a study in the agony of guilt, in the necessity of confession, and the assurance and joy of the steadfast love of the Lord that surrounds those who put their trust in the Lord. This is the the blessing of justification that he's unpacking for us here. And he says, listen, both Abraham and David believe this, that they both put their hope in this. And he describes for us two of the greatest blessings of justification. First, listen to what he says, uh, those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Second, blessed are those whose sins are covered. And then he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's this word count right here or credit that links this psalm to what Paul has been talking about. This is the, the, the linguistic link that he's making, but there is a thematic link that he's making. He's making this powerful statement, how blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Some translations actually have these words, and I think it actually captures more the sense of the passage. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will never count his sins against him. I love that. That that is so powerful and it's so profound. Who will never count his sins against him. Listen, every one of us knows what it's like to sin against another person And then to expect or to experience those same sins that that we've been told are forgiven thrown back in our face. We've, We've all experienced that. Maybe we've even all done that. We've forgiven somebody and we said, you know what, I'm never gonna bring this up again. I've completely forgiven you. And then at just the right moment, with just the right amount of force, just the right amount of edge in our voice, we remind them of their sin. It's like a dagger to the heart. We know what that feels like. We know what it feels like, the pain that we go through when we're reminded of a sin that we've been forgiven for, the shame, the guilt wash over us again, the reminder of what we've done, of who we are, how painful is that? But isn't it so awesome to know that God is not like that? Once God has forgiven our sin through the work of Christ, He will never bring it up again, never. Not in this life and not in the day of judgment. Through faith in Christ, God completely covers your sin debt. 
He pays the price in full. I love what A.W. Pink says. He said, Christ comes with a blessing in each hand, forgiveness in one, and holiness in the other. God credits His holiness to us. What a blessing. But God brings complete forgiveness to us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. So here's the question that we need to wrestle with. Why would we trade the blessings of God for the blessings offered by this world? We often run away from the blessings of God because we would rather have the blessings that this world has to offer. Maybe you're an unbeliever and you have been chasing the blessings of this world. You've been chasing the blessings of reputation or of worldly success or finances or fame or whatever it is. We so often want the blessings of power and prestige, of pleasures and the passions of our flesh. We want what sin offers. But you can have all the blessings that this world has to offer and still be absolutely miserable. In fact, that's so often what God wants us to realize. Because none of the blessings of this world can take away from us the weight and burden of our sin. Like David who had it all, but he was crushed by the weight of his sin. You see, like David, you too can find forgiveness with God You can have your debt canceled and covered, the burden of sin rolled away and strength renewed and restored, and you can rejoice like Him, and you can proclaim like Him the blessings of the forgiveness and mercy of God. You can say like David, blessed are you, knowing He will never count your sin against you. It has been counted to Christ instead, and He has covered your debt in full. In light of this truth, we ought to be those who rejoice, to those who count it a joy and a privilege to sing praise to God, to thank God. And understanding these truths about the gospel are the things that motivate us to go and sin no more. May God use our worship of Him and our rejoicing in the gospel to lead us further and further away from the sins of our flesh. So, who is eligible for these blessings? What kind of people? Here's the answer that Paul gives lastly. God calls all people. God calls all people. Look at verse 9 and 10. Is is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. The Jews thought that salvation was, in many ways, about your ethnicity, that this blessing was only for the Jew, for the circumcised. Paul's counter-argument is that faith is the only way God has ever put anyone right with Himself, and that this humbling message is actually offered to both Jew and Gentile alike. Circumcision was a right, and it was a mark of the Jewish people. So Paul simply builds a a chronological timeline here to prove his point, and he makes a statement that should have been obvious to them. He says, look, Abraham was saved. The righteousness was credited to him before he was circumcised, not after. It wasn't a result of his circumcision. It had nothing, in effect, to do with his ethnicity. And if you go back to Genesis, the chronology is decisive. 
You see, God makes this promise to him in Genesis 15, 6, and all you need to know is that Abraham was circumcised in, Gen- in Genesis 17, verse 24, and it's likely that there is at least 14 years that have passed between there. So you don't need to be a mathematician. You just need to understand that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17, and you understand Paul's point. So here's the crazy part that Paul is actually teaching them. Abraham was justified when he was, in effect, a Gentile. He was saved as a Gentile. Paul's clear answer reminds us of what the Scriptures have always taught, what gospel history has always taught, that the gospel, that salvation, is not simply and only for the Jew. It's always been for the Jew and the Gentile. There's no other way for anyone to be saved. His circumcision simply confirmed his righteous status. It didn't produce his righteous status. Abraham's example is important and deliberate. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. His logic is so crystal clear. The purpose of Abraham's righteousness being credited to him before he was circumcised was actually to make him the spiritual father of two groups of people. He is the spiritual father of all who believe and have not been circumcised, that is, Gentile Christians, and he is also the spiritual father of the circumcised, the Jew, in other words, so long as they also, as verse 12 tells us, to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also, listen to this, walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, their salvation is the same as the Gentiles. They need to be saved by faith alone. We love to draw lines in order to separate. This is what we do. Our humanity is fraught with this kind of thinking. We love to categorize people. We love to differentiate people. Some of that's not bad or in any way problematic. Some of it's just the reality of life. But we do, we do as human beings love to draw lines in order to separate. And that's what the Jews had done. They'd drawn these lines in order to separate and and, and to, to essentially isolate themselves and the salvation that they believed was reserved only for them. But what the gospel comes along and does is it erases all of the lines we like to draw in order to unite. And this is the beauty of the church. We are people who have been united under one name, under the banner of the name of Jesus Christ. And in verse 13 through 15, Paul hammers this point home by explaining the promise made to Abraham. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law, another Jewish identity marker. But you see, the law was given 430 years after Abraham. No, Paul says, the promise takes the priority over the law. Nobody is saved through the law. 
And incredibly, Paul here portrays God's promise as being that Abraham, did you catch this, would be heir to the world. What was God's promise to Abraham? He promised that he would bless him, remember? And in the promise, he was actually told that he would receive land. At that time, the land of Canaan hadn't been defined by its borders that would come later in Genesis. He was promised offspring, and he was promised that through this offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in contrast to the curse of sin through Abraham, God was going to reverse the curse. He was going to renew and recreate the world. How did the land here become the world? Because that's what Paul is doing. You see, the three aspects of the promise that we just mentioned are actually bound together. They're not intended to be separated into these neat little categories. They're all to be understood as a package. To be heir of the world is to be the father of many nations. To be heir to the world is to rule over creation. Abraham's offspring will rule the world. That's what this is teaching. And therefore, do what humankind was originally created to do before Adam and Eve rebelled. This is why Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 that the meek will inherit the earth. The promise of land always pointed to the universal rule of Abraham's offspring over the entire earth. You say, well, who is or who are his offspring? Paul says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. He goes on to say, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, and Paul tells us who the offspring is, to the Christ. But interestingly, here in verse 16, notice what Paul says. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Paul says in Galatians 3.16 that the offspring is singular, it's Christ. And then at the same time, he says here in verse 16 that it refers to plural, to all of Abraham's spiritual children by faith. And what he's saying here is that the promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and then by extension, it is fulfilled in all of Christ's children who become, with Abraham, joint heirs who will inherit the earth alongside him. The whole family of God in Christ. See, how will God keep His great universe-renewing promise? The new creation will not be inherited through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Paul tells us why in verses 14 and 15. You see, the law doesn't bring righteousness. It only brings wrath. It turns sin into transgression, meaning a deliberate trespass. Those things we don't know and do are still sin, but it's like walking on a private property. If you're walking through somebody's farm and you don't see any sign, you're still trespassing, but once you walk past a sign that says no trespassers, you're doubly guilty now that you know. know. 
And he says here that if you could accomplish righteousness through the law, it would actually render faith pointless. It would render the promises of God null and void. You wouldn't need the promises of God. You just simply need you and your own strength and your own ability. And then that would give you reason to boast. Verse 16 makes it so clear that if God's promise was fulfilled on the basis of our works, it would never be fulfilled. It couldn't be. But since it's based on grace and His finished work, it can therefore be guaranteed to all His offspring, Jew and Gentile alike, who are united together in Christ You can look through gospel history, and you will find this unchanging truth. Through faith alone, God credits all righteousness, God covers all debt, and God calls all people. This faith alone is in Christ alone and is all by God's grace alone. As we navigate a new year, With as much uncertainty as ever, we have this certain truth. It is the truth that sets us free. It is the truth that gives us hope. It is the truth that produces joy. It is a truth worth believing, proclaiming, living, and it is a truth worth singing. God gives us His righteousness. It is all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gift. We thank you, God, that it is something that you so freely offer to us. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts, even as we begin a a new year as a church family. Lord, I, I pray that with all of the uncertainty, with all of the unknowns, that we would have a security and assurance that is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that we would see our gospel heritage stretching back through the pages of Scripture, that as we read through your word this year, we would see, Lord, how your gospel is so clear, how those of old have always, always put their trust in you. That's always been the only hope for sinful mankind. And Father, we know that, we recognize that, we see that, Lord. We, we understand that we have nothing to boast in. We know, Lord, we know where we would be without you. We know, God, what we deserve apart from your grace. But God, we're so grateful, we're so thankful, we're so overwhelmed that you would take wretches like us. You would make us enemies, your friends. You would take those of us who are broken and destitute and hopeless and you would bring healing and you would call us to yourself and you would give us new life. God Almighty, would you receive all of our praise for all of your amazing grace. God, even our faith, a gift from you. And so, Father, we pour out our praise to you. Would you receive it now? All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.